We are in our second week of a series on the book of 2 Thessalonians. And just so you know, here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we'll sort of um, go back and forth. We'll do sometimes a topical sermon, and then we'll do uh, a sermon that covers a book of the New Testament, then a book of the Old Testament. We'll sort of bounce around a little bit. And part of what we do when we do these, they're called exegetical sermon series. It's where you, you look at a book like 2 Thessalonians. Basically, we're picking a book where we're like, you know what? It may be that the average person doesn't find themselves reading through certain books of the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And so we cover these. Usually we kind of sort of skim over the top of them. We don't go too deep, but at least it gives you some idea of uh, these various parts of Scripture and what they have, have to offer for the church today. Now, last week, we talked about the external pressures that were weighing upon the Thessalonian church. If you remember, they were being persecuted by Greeks, by Romans, and by the Jews because as Christians, they were a religious minority. And because belief in Jesus was offensive to each of those other religions, in some particular ways, uh, they were being um, under, you know, put under some pressure, some scrutiny, sometimes um, under severe persecution. And if you remember, what Paul did was he encouraged the Thessalonian church. He reminded them that despite persecution and suffering, that God was watching over them, that he actually cared, and that he was even working in them through that suffering and through that persecution to make them more and more into his image. This week, we're going to be looking at the second chapter of Second Thessalonians, where Paul addresses another kind of pressure that they're facing. This time, however, the pressure isn't so much external as much as it is internal. Some people within the church uh, there at Thessalonica were teaching that Jesus had already returned and that they had been left behind. And so people were fearing, feeling some fear. They were feeling some trepidation. Others in the church seemed to be teaching that Jesus' return had, uh, was right around the corner. And so some people in the church had stopped working altogether. And that's what we see addressed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll cover that later. Paul here, however, in chapter 2, is comforting the people by reminding them ultimately about what is true. That's what he roots his comfort in, and that should be a comfort for us as well. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pray, but before we do that, um, I'm going to begin with a little clip. Uh, the, it's going to be the opening illustration for today's sermon. It's a clip of James Corden, if you guys are familiar with James Corden, and Rebel Wilson playing a game called Flinch, in which Wilson stands uh, behind a plexiglass shield holding a martini while fruit is shot out of a cannon at her, and her job is to try to flinch and not spill any of the martini. Uh, let me go ahead and we'll pray, and then we'll open with that deeply meaningful clip. All right. Father, thank you so much for each and every one of the people that are here this morning. Um, Father, you know uh, how it is that you are working uh, in their lives. Father, you know how it is um, that you are working in their hearts and in their minds. And Father, I just pray this morning that no one would be able to leave this place today without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God, Father. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So clearly, Rebel Wilson flinched, no doubt about it. She was shaken. Here, at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul reminds the church not to be shaken or to be alarmed. Follow along with me as I read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And again, because this is an exegetical sermon, it's actually going to be a long chunk of this passage. And so again, hang in there, 17 verses. Okay, he says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, 
or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and that you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Okay, it's a long passage. What can we, what should we take away from Second Thessalonians chapter 2? There's a lot here. We're not going to be able to cover all of it. But the first thing I want you to look at is this. As Christians, we can stand firm in any trial by holding to the truth of Scripture. Look at verse 15. So if verse 15 says this, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is the apostolic tradition. The Bible is filled with stories of heroes standing firm. Moses stands firm before Pharaoh. He also stands firm with the Red Sea on one side and with the Egyptian army on the other. David the shepherd boy stands firm when facing the giant Goliath. Elijah the prophet stands firm when facing the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Undoubtedly, however, the two greatest stories of standing firm in the Bible uh, involve Jesus himself. The first is Jesus remaining on the cross when he could have simply called angels to remove him, to take him down. The second is when Jesus is led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. After Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days, Satan comes to tempt Jesus with food, with security, and with a shortcut to accomplish his mission. The temptation to give in must have been massive in Jesus' weakened state, but each time Jesus remained steadfast. The source of his strength was rooted in hearing the voice of his Father. That's true for us too. The source of Jesus' strength was hearing the voice of his Father. If you remember, just before Jesus went into the wilderness, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. 
In Matthew 3, we read the story of this, beginning in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? Before Jesus went into the desert, he was reminded of who he was. He's the Son of God. He was reminded what the Son of God believed and thought was true about him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then, many of you will remember that in the midst of Jesus' time in the wilderness, that Jesus responded to Satan's temptations by quoting Scripture as a rebuke. In other words, Jesus stood firm against Satan by reminding himself and also Satan of what was true. Here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul encourages these anxious believers to stand firm in the same way. In fact, he begins this chapter by encouraging them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And then he ends the chapter by saying, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Paul doesn't appeal to them to stand firm or not to be shaken by appealing to their pride. He doesn't invoke sort of their bravery by attempting to shame them into courage, but rather he roots his admonition to perseverance in Scripture, in the gospel, and in the apostolic tradition. He tells them to stand firm because of what is true. At a fundamental level, we all understand this to be correct. As a parent, when our children are afraid to go to sleep at night because they fear that monsters are hiding under the bed, we turn on the lights and we show them that the coast is clear. When adults have what they know to be an irrational fear of flying, they might remind themselves of what is true as well, that the odds of dying in a commercial air incident are 1 in 29.4 million. In this case, it's not the fear of monsters, it's not the fear of plane crashes, but rather it's the fear that they may have been left behind that the Thessalonian church is wrestling with. But Paul offers them comfort by reminding them of what is true, by reminding them of where to look and who to listen to. So the question is, well, what is true about the return of the Lord? That's really what the book of 2 Thessalonians is about. One point that Paul makes clear is the second point of today's sermon, which is this. As Christians, we can stand firm remembering that the day of the Lord will be preceded by this figure that we call the man of lawlessness. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8, and there's actually more we could read, but I'm going to keep it shorter here. For that day will not come, that is the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. There's a lot there. And again, that was only half of that discussion. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that the day of the Lord, or Jesus' second coming, will be preceded by this figure, a historical figure, uh, called the man of lawlessness. In the Greek, the term is anthropos tes anomias, 
And basically what that could be translated is, is the man without the law. John Stott translates this as the antinomian, the antinomian. Both John Stott and Tim Keller make the point that this man isn't just obedient to the law, but rather denies that there is a law or any transcendental standard of right and wrong or truth and falsity or good and bad at all. So just so you know, the relativity of truth is a core teaching of what's called postmodern epistemology. Epistemology is how can we know what's true. Postmodernity was a particular school of thought that, that denied uh, the reality of any meta-narrative. Much of the chaos that we're experiencing in the West right now is the product of that very postmodern thought which calls into question all truth claims. The question then is, who is this man of lawlessness? Most scholars believe that this person is the Antichrist who is spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. The Apostle John references this figure in his first letter when he writes this. He says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. And there are any other number of verses that point to this person as well. And what those passages and this passage in 2 Thessalonians all seem to indicate is that there is a final historical person, this Antichrist, who will appear before Jesus returns, but that even before him, there will be many other antichrists as well, many other embodiments of this lawlessness. Each of these figures have certain things in common. Not only do they deny some sort of reality of a transcendental law, but according to John, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that Jesus actually came in the flesh. That was Gnosticism. And they do not confess Jesus as Lord or Savior. According to John, these antichrists are liars and deceivers in his words. They seek not only to lead unbelievers astray, but believers astray as well. In fact, as verse 4 reminds us, this figure will take his seat in the temple of God. Different people interpret that in different ways, but what I think that at least means is that this man of lawlessness or these, uh, these antichrists will be active in the church itself at times, and they will somehow set themselves up in the place of God. There's a sense in which that harkens back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, who ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they were going to determine for themselves what good and bad, right and, and wrong, truth and falsity was. So there's a lot there. And again, just, just to remind you, if you had been an Old Testament uh, sort of Pharisee living 2,000 years ago or 2,200 years ago, and you were to try to gather together all the evidence for when Jesus was coming, there's a really, really good chance you would have missed it. And so I would argue that in looking through the New Testament, you have a similar level of humility. That's part of what I'm arguing for here. But the good news in this passage is that there's, there's not, that's not the end of the story. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that there's something or someone that is restraining not only the man of lawlessness, but this mystery or appearance of lawlessness as well. Look at verse 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery, and again, that is mysterion in Greek, it means to be revealed, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And so scholars are divided about exactly who or what is restraining the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness that is already at work. Some argue that what restrains lawlessness is the civil government. That's some scholars make that point. That's surely true to some degree. 
Others believe that angels are what restrains this lawlessness. That's possible as well. Still, others believe that the job of the church, that it's the job of the church to restrain this lawlessness. Regardless, whatever it is that is this restraining entity or entities are doing exactly what God empowers them to do, to keep lawlessness and the man of lawlessness at bay until God decides when he shall be released. One final piece of good news. Though this man of lawlessness or this antichrist will do great damage and will undoubtedly lead many astray, ultimately this man of lawlessness will be defeated by Jesus. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Here's what Eugene Peterson, or how he translates this in the message. He says this, he says, the time will come when the anarchist will no longer be held back, but will be let loose. But don't worry, the master Jesus will be right on his heels and blow him away. The master appears and poof, the Antichrist is out of there. In other words, Jesus is in control. He's more than up to the task to overcome this man of lawlessness. So, Facing the day of the Lord, we can stand firm as we hold on to the truth of Scripture. That's not just true about our fears around Jesus' second coming, by the way. It's actually true about all of our fears, right? We should always be reminding ourselves of what is true and what we read in Scripture about who God is and about who we are. Also, regarding Jesus' second coming, we can stand firm as we remember that the day of the Lord will actually be preceded by this man of lawlessness. That's part of the point that, uh, that Paul is clearly making here in chapter 2. But finally, there is one more point, and it's this. As Christians, we can stand firm remembering that the day of the Lord is ultimately a mystery. The day of the Lord is ultimately a mystery. Throughout the last 2,000 years, very sincere people have issued predictions about Jesus' return, and about the end of the world. And obviously, so far, they've all been wrong. The most recent high-profile end-of-the-world claim was made by a man named Harold Camping. Some of you guys probably saw him in the news over the last 10 years. Starting in 1958, he served as the president of a California-based Christian radio station. In 1994, Camping predicted that Judgment Day would occur on September 6, 1994. When that prediction failed to materialize, he changed that date to September 29th, 1994, and then finally October 2nd, 1994, and clearly each time he was wrong. Camping then took a 10-year break or hiatus from any predictions until 2005 when he issued another prognostication about the timing of Jesus' return. This time, Camping argued that Jesus would return on May 21st of 2011, and then after Jesus returned, the world would be destroyed five months later on October 21st of 2011. Again, both Jesus' return and the end of the world failed to materialize on Camping's timetable. Less than a year later, Camping admitted in a private interview that he no longer believed that anyone could know the time of the rapture or the end of the world. In March of 2012, Camping stated that his attempt to predict a date was, in his words, sinful, and that his critics had been right in emphasizing the words of Matthew 24, 36, which say this, but about that day or hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Camping added that he was now searching the Bible even more fervently, not to find dates, but to be more faithful. In affirming the unknowability of Jesus' return, it's helpful not only to hear Jesus' words in Matthew 24, but also to look back at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians when he wrote something very similar. He said this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, Jesus' return is meant to be and will always be a mystery. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, not even the angels know when he is returning. Both Paul and Jesus make it clear that we really shouldn't spend much time, if any, trying to figure out when Jesus is returning. Rather, since Jesus will return in a time and in a place that's a mystery to us, our job is simply to live a life of faithfulness to him. Now, there's more in this passage, a lot more in this passage, but we don't have the time to unpack it all. Just a reminder that what Paul is doing here is he's writing to a particular group of people in a particular part of time in history who are dealing with a very particular struggle. And his goal is to actually encourage them and to strengthen these troubled believers by telling them what is true. And ultimately, Paul leaves them and with us with a final word of encouragement. Just listen to this uh, beginning in verse 13. Paul says this or writes this. He writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. He reminds them that God loves them because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He reminds them that they are adopted children of God and that God is at work in them, making them more and more human. Verse 14 To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then he gives them a a benediction of sorts, a blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He ends this chapter by giving them lots and lots of hope. He reminds the Thessalonians, and he reminds us that we are loved by the Lord, that we are chosen, that we're adopted by him, and that his Holy Spirit is actually at work in us, and that God's goal is that they, the Thessalonians, and that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may be comforted through his grace. In other words, his comfort to us is ultimately found in the message of the gospel.